We are born free, and we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom here on the Lions of Liberty Podcast Network. And boy, oh boy, I got a great show for you all tonight. Got two guests coming at you. And I'll introduce them in just a minute. But before I do that, I just want to remind everyone out there, if you like this show, if you like me, and if you like our, our Wednesday show, hosted by Brian McWilliams, um, please consider subscribing to this show on your uh, your favorite podcasting app. So probably the app you're listening to this right now on. And if you do that, and if you still like the show and listen to a bunch of them, um, please consider joining our Lions of Liberty Pride, which you can join on Patreon or Locals. That's at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty or Lions of Liberty dot locals.com. And tonight we're going to be talking about recovery, recovery from addiction. Um, I'm going to introduce two guests, Chris Dreisbach and Shannon Moore. I'll bring them on the screen now. And uh, Chris has been on the show before. I think it's his third or, or fourth time. I, I don't know. We've hosted some roundtables together, diff different things. Uh, Chris is definitely a friend of the show, met him back in the uh, Dale Kearns for U.S. Senate days. Um, he helped to organize um, a lot of Dale's tour through the state, which was uh, on the addiction is not a crime th uh, theme. So really, really cool stuff. Chris is also a serial entrepreneur. I think the last time he was on, we talked mostly about entrepreneurship. He's got his hands in um, a lot of different things, food trucks, sports trading cards, um, real estate, um, his blueprints for addiction recovery, which he's a CEO of. So a lot of different things. And uh, Shannon Moore. Um, Shannon is a former WWE wrestler and WCW and TNA um, wrestling star. Um, and we're here to talk about a uh, Amazon Prime special that, uh, that they were both on. It's called A Night of Recovery. It's getting great reviews. So I want to bring them on to talk about it. Let's start with start with Chris. Chris, you're back on the show. Great to have you back. Thanks for coming on. How you doing? What's new? John, I am fired up to be on your show every single time. Uh, it used to be called Felony Friday. I literally talk about being a felon every single day of my life. And, uh, you know, I think we were just exchanging texts and I was telling you that you have the best names for podcasts ever. But. I'm super pumped to be here. I'm super pumped to talk about Night of Recovery live from the Moravian Center, which is live on Prime Video right now. Yeah, and uh, I just watched it today, and it is uh, it's awesome. I mean, to hear um, you know from real people with real stories. Um, one of them right here, um, Shannon Moore. The story that Shannon shared. It's I mean, it, it, it'll it'll blow you away. So. Shannon, why don't you introduce yourself to the uh, Finding Freedom audience and you know tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself? Yeah, um, thanks for having me on the show uh, with one of my favorite people in the world, Chris. And I butcher his last name every time I say it on purpose, <laughs> Chris Drosenbach, Um, Just so you know, and you guys know his last name and how to pronounce it. Um, uh, I'm glad to be on tonight. Uh, you know, like like you said, you know. As far as if you don't know me, if you don't know much about me, you know, I'm, my name's Shannon Moore. And um, I grew up in a small town of Cameron, North Carolina. And, you know, wrestling was something that when I was a child, um, you know, I escaped through pro wrestling, watching it on TV. And then, you know, while I was a child, I, I guess I started my adventure into pro wrestling to try to escape uh, what it was that, you know, I guess I was running from as a child then, because uh, as you probably listened to my story, um, you know, sometimes our childhoods aren't the best and we don't really understand that until later. Um, but now I, I, you know, 
there was a point in my life where, you know, I went through treatment and through treatment, I learned that that was an escape for me. And then later it would become a reality, you know, that I would be part of the pro wrestling industry myself. And it was able to hopefully help some other people escape. So I'm glad to be on the show and I'm glad to talk about, you know, my story and hear Chris talk about his story and um, just the night of recovery, man. It's so exciting to see this thing blow up and, you know, some eyeballs, you know, get attached to it and some education get thrown out there about what addiction truly is and how we can combat that. The, the show itself, um, you know, I, I think maybe pe- people that, you know, click on it, Night of Recovery, um, I, in a good way, I think will be surprised by, by the content with, uh, w- with how raw it is. But um, Chris, I wanted to ask you, um, where did this idea come from to have these, you know, really um, venues for people to come on, uh, people like Shannon and, and yourself, you, you shared some of your story too, to uh, really just share the, the real raw stories of addiction and, and recovery. Well, truly a lot of it came from the original addiction is not a crime slash uh, communities against addiction tour that we did in 2018. And that came just from being in recovery at that time for what, 11 years. And, you know, I'd been to so many different town hall style things and like uh, speeches and a lot of them, lacked the content to keep my attention and keep me entertained long enough for me to catch the message. And I thought when we did that tour, how cool would it be to bring some notable people along with us? And we had, you know, Brandon Novak, we had Sean Waltman who actually introduced me to Shannon shortly after that tour. And it kind of just spurred from me and Shannon and Jesus and Kurt hanging out and talking about, what we can do to bring recovery to more people, to bring education Mm -hmm. to more people and to make sure that everybody understands addiction is not something to be ashamed of. We struggled with it. We recovered and now our lives are beautiful. So how many people can we hit with that? How many people can we touch and how much shame and stigma can we break together? So just, just mentioning, you know, some of those names, Shannon, Jesus, Kurt, um, Sean Waltman, these are all um, former professional wrestlers. Um, Shannon, what, what's what thoughts do you have, or um, you know, really outlook on maybe why pro wrestlers would be um, more likely to become addicts? Is, is that is that a true statement, or is is that something that I'm, I'm kind of off base venturing down? Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. I think the, you know, like, that's it. I mean, pro wrestlers, like our lifestyles, especially the generation that I come up in, man, like I come up in an old school generation to where, you know, it was sex, drugs and rock and roll. That's just kind of what it was. Um, You know, out of the late 90s, I feel like pro wrestling took a turn to where, you know, WWE become a publicly traded company, Um, you know, at a certain point to where, you know, that company, it, it went to this new level. And whenever it went to this new level, you know, that lifestyle, like it, it wasn't acceptable no more. It wasn't acceptable because um, it, it being a publicly traded company and you just can't have, you know, a bunch of outcasts running around the world, um, you know, just living that lifestyle, I feel like. And I think it was a great time in professional wrestling because that was the tipping point where something had to be done um about that and about what pro wrestling was from you know back in the 70s and 80s because you know it it was it was kind of an an outlaw industry back in the day um you know if you if you go back into pro wrestling days like to the carny eras you know like it was a sideshow attraction at one point and um you know that and that that's what attracted me to it like honestly at the beginning was that um the sideshow presence, you know, like I was always a huge fan of the tattoo industry and I, I own tattoo shops, but the parallels of the mm-hmm. two, those two industries are, are very similar. And until that was, that was changed, you know, like, like I said, into the late nineties, like the industry took a big turn and, you know, that's whenever I feel like this whole addiction thing really um, come to the forefront of like, okay, like it's time to confront this thing and let's start, uh, fighting this battle. 
Um, you know, just unfortunately, like for me, I, I was never educated on what addiction truly was other than like the, I feel like, you know, we had the programs in school, like, um, you know, dare to keep kids off drugs, but that was cool. And dare was cool back in the day, but you know, it's easy to say like, Hey, don't do drugs. Drugs are bad, but okay. What happens when you do do drugs and physical addiction sets in, what do you do then? And like that education was never there for me. Yeah. There's no, uh, no, no tools. It, it just stops it. Don't do it. And then, then from there, you're, you're basically, basically on your own. Um, so, you know, one thing that, that was, that was pretty consistent um, throughout each story, maybe not every story, but you know, there was, you know, some, some childhood, um, childhood trauma. I, I know in, in your story, Shannon, um, it, I, I think, I think you described it as being born mm-hmm. into chaos um, during your story. When people look at addicts, when they look at addiction um, from the outside looking in, they don't really think about, you know, all of the things that kind of kind of led to that. Um, the, the, the things in the background, the things in people's childhoods, the things below the surface. Um, what, what would you say to, you know, so, someone on the street who, um, you know, ha- has this sort of view of addiction, like I think many people do, and then they have a, they have a similar v- view of, uh, you know, felons, people who've, you know, spent time in prison where it's like, you know, these are just, um, and I don't know the word I'm looking for, but, you know, so, sort of like, a so, sort of like a, a, a lower tier of society They kind of separate the, themselves from them, um, without looking at, you know, the root causes of it. I don't even know yeah. if I asked a question there or just rambled, but do you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I, I completely, you know, what understand what you're saying. I mean, I, if you look at me, like I'm, I'm a picture of what you're describing right there, right? We're a very judgmental society. Um, we always have been like, that's just what society is. And, you know, we hear the term and we've always heard it, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge a book by its cover, but we do, especially whenever it comes to addiction or alcoholism, or what a drug addict looks like. It's like mm-hmm. a drug addict to most people is that homeless man under the bridge. It's that that person that's got tattoos on his face. It's the person that has tattoos on his body. Because like it, it's easy to look at somebody and just judge them and go, oh yeah, they're probably a drug addict. Whenever, you know, the reality of it is, and you know, what we have to get to, I think, as a society is we can't treat addiction as the black sheep. Like most uh, businesses, companies, major companies, you know, addictions, the black sheep, you don't want to talk about it in the room because if you hire people and there's people in your organization that don't look like addicts, they're probably not addicts. Whenever in theory, you know, the, the 75 year old woman that's, you know, running through the white picket fence, killing the kid in the front yard, um, just because she was prescribed this medication, She's not looked at as an addict, even though she's been taking a benzo or, you know, some sort of drug for the last 40 years. It was prescribed, but typically that's an addict too. Like if you look at it, if it's somebody that's dependent on a medication that can, you know, um, that can make their judgment off or, you know, they shouldn't be driving a car because they're impaired. There's no difference than that tattooed person. Um, that's physically addicted because they were taking something to start with for back pain, but then physical addiction sets in and they don't know what addiction truly is until they're educated on it. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I mean, and Chris, in, in your story, um, you took us to your story and really, you know, every story was different, but I think, I think you, you said in the beginning of yours that, I mean, you had a, a great childhood, um, you know, your, your parents are, are, are still married and, um, a lot of it kind of just stemmed from you feeling, you know, just like, like out of place and having, you know, social anxiety. Right. Yeah. I mean, through a lot of recent therapy, I've learned that even though my childhood was great, there were things that occurred during it that Mm -hmm. set my brain in motion for future addiction issues. And it wasn't anything tremendously insane. It was just my parents working really hard to keep four kids alive and, you know, getting us through school and getting us fed. And, you know, we're all giants. So we obviously ate a lot. 
but you know, like that simple little thing apparently can create neural pathways in your brain that switch you towards those things, you know, and, uh, I'm not a neurologist, so I'm not even going to pretend to dive deep into brain science with you, but I definitely could see where some of the things that I experienced, even though they weren't necessarily bad, could have created that pathway for me, uh, or at least had me predisposed to it and not, uh, you know, saying anything remotely negative towards my parents. Cause I was just hanging out with them before we were doing this thing. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, Life's tough. Parenting is tough. I've got an 18-month-old baby, and I am now learning. Parenting is really difficult. <laughs> yeah. It is. But yeah, I think to, the... oh, go ahead. Go, yeah, just to speak to your, your kind of societal discussion there, you know, we do a lot of work with law enforcement, and we train police on the brain science of addiction, and we train them on the continuum of care, and we continue, and we continue to work with them and explain how addiction works. And every single time I get to do a training, most of the police kind of look at me like, oh, you're a long haired nut job with a big beard. And, uh, you know, like there's no possible way this guy knows things. There's no possible way this guy is going to teach me clean cut police officer anything. And by the time we get done with our hour and a half together, it's illustrated to them that people who struggle with addiction are actually quite capable, intelligent, strong people. And one of those things, that I like to point out is that I also am judging them at the same time. We are such a judgmental society that while they're judging me, I'm judging them. And every single time I judge them, I am wrong, big time wrong, big time wrong. That's a great point. We're all, uh, we're all self-absorbed people um, kind of putting <laughs> ourselves on this pedestal and, and judging, judging everyone else. And, uh, in every single case, we're we're getting it we're getting it wrong, but bringing up the police there um, made me think of a, an aspect of a Shannon story um, that he shared on night of night of recovery, where um, you know when you were in the throes of addiction, and you know there were police that were coming into your tattoo shop and you know trying to get you to go into recovery um, that would kind of you know steer you away from trouble, but it didn't, didn't arrest you. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, like I've, I've owned several tattoo shops and one of the tattoo shops that I opened was in probably the, the worst part of my addiction. Um, you know, right at that bottom point, you hear people talk about, you know, reaching their bottom, um, whenever they're in active addiction. And, you know, like whenever I was, you know, amongst my chaos of my life just being out of control, like, you know, me and my wife had split and I owned a house in, you know, the Cocoa Beach area of Florida. I ran back to North Carolina and I opened a tattoo shop. What did I do? I didn't have no money because going through my divorce. So I was like, oh, what a better thing here. Let me buy, you know, half a million dollars worth of real estate and open a tattoo shop but not really open a tattoo shop. It was basically just something to make enough money to get by and then, you know, buy my drugs with it. And my tattoo shop in the real estate that I purchased was right across from the sheriff's department where probably 50% of the sheriffs I went to high school with. And, you know, they were friends of mine. So they were obviously coming in and out of my tattoo shop and they knew something was wrong. You know, like it, they, they knew that there was an issue. And, you know, whenever that was going on, it was just like, man, like, you know, they they could see me, you know, struggling, but I couldn't see myself struggling. And, you know, they, they were giving me hints like, Hey man, like probably need some help. You know, like we know there's something wrong and, you know, they wasn't saying it, they wasn't saying like, Hey, we're going to arrest you. But looking back, you know, whenever you pull up to a traffic check and you basically got heroin in the car and you're smoking a joint without putting it out in front of the cop. And, you know, you put them in these awkward situations and they tell you like, go to your tattoo shop. We're going to be there in a minute. And then they come to the shop and basically go like, Hey dude, like you can't keep putting me in these situations. Like, do you need help? It's like, nah, man, you know, sorry. Like just, you know, I forgot that you were having the traffic check, even though you warned me, that's where you were going to be. Um, it's just the insanity behind it. And it's where you're at whenever you're in active addiction. It's complete insanity. Like you're, you're sick. 
it's just like somebody that has cancer. You know, if, if you don't treat the cancer, if the doctor tells you, Hey, you know, you've got stage four cancer. And if you don't take this medication, you're going to die. We're, we, we're untreated, you know, patients whenever we're in active addiction and we just don't know it. Along those lines, I mean, if there's someone out there right now listening to this and they have a loved one who is, you know, in the middle of active addiction, um, you know, I'll, I'll ask you, Chris, what, what kind of advice would you give to someone in, in that situation? That's actually some advice that I give out pretty often. And for people who are in that situation with a loved one who's struggling currently, there's really not a whole lot you can do to convince them otherwise, because it is a, an actual brain illness. It's something that they can't control. But becoming armed with the facts about addiction and becoming armed with the resources available in your community are the two recommendations that I give out the most. Because when that moment comes that the universe or God or the world or whatever it might be pushes them towards recovery, if you're not educated, if you're not understanding of the resources available in your community, then I imagine, I don't know what's going on there, then I imagine it's going to be much more difficult for them to get help. Because at that exact moment, the window could be really, really small. They could only be willing for two or three minutes or five minutes or eight minutes or 12 minutes. And those two, three, five, eight or 12 minutes could be the difference between their life and their death. And being armed with the facts is the most important thing I can think of. And, and where would someone, I mean, where do people start with that? Where, where do you go to, to educate yourself? So most places across the country, I assume, uh, the county level government should have some kind of drug and alcohol commission or, um, you know, it's really difficult to say without knowing where everybody's at. But at least here in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, I can speak to it. We have a drug and alcohol commission. If you uh, reach out and call them, they'll get you connected to treatment. Uh, if you're really, really confused, you can use the Second Chance PA number at 717-287-8027. It's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week line for certified recovery specialists to answer the phone and uh, assist you in getting help that you need. There's also a, a federal uh, SAMHSA thing that uh, you can call in and get access to resources. Um, or you know, this new thing called Google. Um, Google should be able to help some of the people in, in the worst cases you know, just reaching out for addiction help near me and being mindful of the fact that there's a lot of places that are unscrupulous that put up Google ads in the first couple uh, things. So it's very important to go down to the organic level and see what's near you. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thanks for sharing that, Chris. Um, Shannon, you know, as, as we talked about earlier about um, there being, you know, a, a fair amount of professional wrestlers who have, you know, struggled with addiction and, uh, you know, now, now we're in recovery. Um, I'm curious what kind of, uh, you know, response interaction that, um, you've received from, from your fans, you know, as they've seen you come out and now, you know, sharing, um, as an open book, is, have, have you gotten feedback from, from your fans? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like there's been several people, you know, over the course of the last six years that I've actually been able to help that's reached out to me wanting help themselves. Uh, it just people that, you know, have supported me in my career for the last 30 years and, you know, they were struggling themselves. And once they heard my story, they were like, Hey, you know, maybe I have a problem. And so there's been several people just that have followed my career and been a fan of wrestling and what I've done in the ring for years that I've helped. But you know, and then outside of that, like, you know, it's something that I've been fortunate to do is I've been able to, you know, I, I work at a treatment center in Tampa myself now. I'm a client relations manager there. And basically, I'm a peer support specialist there. And, you know, I, I work with pro athletes there and I work with veterans there. And it's really cool, man, because, you know, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of wrestlers, a lot of pro wrestlers over the last, you know, five years and, you know, there's a lot of parallels there, um, you know, with pro athletes, with veterans that, you know, whenever you've been through it, it's a lot easier to help somebody. And, man, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like being able to, you know, a brother or sister that, you know, 
that's had the same struggles, um, whether it's been on the road, uh, you know, maybe injuries that led to addiction, whatever the case may be, or, you know, like me, like just some, you know, some, some things from the past, some PTSD or whatever it is that they might be going through, being able to use my story to get enough trust from them to be able to guide them into this recovery journey. Like it, it's the most rewarding thing that I've ever got. Like there's nothing that money's ever been able to buy me than seeing somebody that has reached out or I've been part in being able to get back on their feet and to see them living their best life at this point and get their families back and, you know, to recover. And that's what recovery is, man. And like, that's exactly what night of recovery is about. It's about giving people that education to be able to get to that point and to recover. I, I think that, I mean, what you just described there, you helping others, you know, fueling your own recovery and then fueling others recovery. I mean, that, that community um, is, is fantastic. And Chris, I mean, you, you talked about that, shared about that during your story where, you know, you, you talk about being in the, in the halfway house and, you know, finally being able to, uh, to fall asleep at night without having your, your mind racing because you're an opportunity to serve others. So can you talk a little bit about how serving others has, has helped you in your recovery? Man, what I discovered in the early days of my recovery is that my main problem, one of my main problems was selfishness and that I solely focus on this right here. That was all I did all the way up until 2007. And I didn't even realize it. That was the most messed up part is that when you're in the throes of it, you can't see it. Just like Shannon was talking about earlier, um, you know, similar situation. And once I got sober and I got the opportunity to begin serving others, I, man, it's just, you can't even put words to it. Like Shannon was talking about, uh, once you watch somebody, you know, let's say some of the people I helped about 10 years ago, I'm watching them now at 10 years helping a whole new group of people. And then that group of people is going to step out and help other people. And then they're going to step out and help other people. And the hope is it's just this complete trickle down of awesomeness and people growing and people being healthy, people learning and people coming together and connecting and feeling valued and feeling loved. And oh, man. I just love the night of recovery concept so much because being able to be in a position to bring that kind of positivity to other people's lives is just such an honor. Uh, can you guys speak to, um, you know, the, the different um, avenues to recovery that, that are out there, um, you know, be it, uh, um, AA or, you know, the, the different ways that people find recovery and, you know, maybe kind of share, share personally your, uh, your path to recovery, I guess, starting with, uh, with Shannon. Yeah. You know, like there's, whenever it comes to recovery, there's so many different methods that you can take, right? Like it's not, it's not one Avenue. And like, that's the cool thing about recovery that really attracted me to recovery is the fact about, you know, of how it's my recovery. Like my recovery is not going to look the same as anybody else's, um, even though there is there's there's when it comes to 12 step programs like, you know, it's 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 suggestions of how to live in long term sobriety and how to live in sobriety. But sobriety and recovery is two separate things. And that's what people have to understand. Like you can be sober and not be in recovery. But to truly live in recovery, like it's a lifestyle change, right? It's a, you know, they call it a psychic change in the 12 step uh, recovery world. It's called a psychic change. And what a psychic change is, is to recreate, right? You recreate your life in this different way of living to where you're living with principles. And, you know, like you, you wake up every day and you have a purpose. And once you find that purpose and you recreate your life, like you tap into this life that you could you could never imagine that you would live, especially whenever you're walking through the depths of hell um, in active addiction, you know, like because you don't whenever you're in active addiction, you just don't know how you're going to climb your way out of it. You don't know how life can get any better. But once you go from sobriety to recovery, like, man, like it just it gets better and it gets better and it gets better. And the more people you're around, like, you know, it's about attraction. And, you know, you want what these other people in recovery got and what they have. 
And, you know, and what that is, like, it's not just materialistic things. Like, it's just, it's what they have inside. It's like this peace and this serenity and this service that they're doing. And, it, like, they're happy. And, like, that's what attracted me, like, the first, probably the first week of meetings that I went into. Um, you know, it was this lovely bunch that I went to. And um, it, it was it's this group called the 164 Group, and I'll never forget it. I walked in that day and like these guys were lively and they were energetic and they were joking and having fun and talking like sailors and cussing. And I was going, man, they're like me, except they're sober and they're having fun. Like, look, they're these people are, you know, they're in a good mood. Like, man, I want that. And that's what it is, man. Like these programs are programs of attraction. And man, whenever you see it and and you want it and you're ready it's it's magic and then whenever you actually take action man and you set out on your journey like man from a spiritual concept from you know like um from from the concept of just rebuilding rebuilding your life in a way that you never could have imagined it's like if you follow these suggestions there's no way that life can't get better and like that that was at least my experience and like man what a great life it is because it brings people like chris dreisenbach into your life you know <laughs> Chris, do you want to share on the the different different avenues to uh, to recover? Yeah, I'm officially going to change my last name to Dreisenbach now, just for sure. I, I love it. I love saying that. It makes <laughs> yeah. you sound more sophisticated. I think. It, it, I, I don't know. Whatever I say, it, I, I feel like he he's like a vampire, Dreisenbach. <laughs> and I think he could be a vampire. Maybe I could Maybe. see. It. Always dressing in black. Me. I don't know. It could, yeah, it could, be. It could be. I'm wearing gray today, Odor Matt. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, there's so many different paths to recovery, and I got sober similar to Shannon in a rather old school AA uh, place, but filled with young people, and that was what kind of shifted for me in in. Allentown and Emmaus, where I'm from originally, and I went to AA meetings because the judges told me I had to. I would go, and it'd be a bunch of old dudes, and they'd be like mean and angry. And I was like, I don't know why I would want to be like this mean, angry dudes because, like, I'm already angry and miserable, and like, what's the point? And so when I got to Lancaster and I met these other dudes in their early 20s and they were fired up about life. I mean, they were talking about being like me and feeling the way I felt, but it was clear, so clear that there was fire in their eyes, there was passion in their hearts, and they were all about helping other people feel that way. And I couldn't do anything other than latch on and jump on board with them. And they taught me about the 12 steps and I've gone through so many phases over the last 16 years. I was like gung-ho, super evangelical, ready to fight everybody who didn't do recovery exactly the way I did it. And, you know, I was completely nuts. And then I grew up a little bit and I learned that perhaps I don't know everything and maybe there are other avenues. And uh, a much wiser man than me, Dave Malloy, told me one day that, uh, you know, how arrogant were we to think and to say that there was only one way to happiness that there's only one way to go here and it kind of came when fentanyl started coming around and a lot of our friends and our generation started dying off and we we're getting real tired of losing all of our friends and we started to realize that like medication assisted treatment was actually a thing that could help people and for years i would run around and say oh, don't take suboxone don't take methadone don't do this because you're not sober and man i don't even want to know how many people died as a result of my arrogance and my stupidity and my youthful indiscretion. And, you know, so that's one path to recovery. There's people who use Suboxone successfully. There's people who use methadone successfully. They have happy lives. You know, God bless it and God love that. Uh, you know, you have Celebrate Recovery and other Christian uh, groups, you know, religious groups. I'm sure there's some good Muslim ones, some Buddhist ones. I don't know what the Buddhist one's called. Shannon, do you remember? Um yeah, I, I know it. I just, refuge, I just had a brain fart. Refuge Recovery, refuge recovery yeah. I think it's called. Uh, you know, there's uh, literally so many paths to it. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a smart recovery, which is purely uh, mental, like psychological recovery, to my knowledge or understanding. Uh, I mean, literally, there's just so you go to California, be California sober. <laughs> you know, Shane, <laughs> big fan of that. Yeah. Uh, you could drink, you could drink Mucinex like Shannon does. He's on a heavy Mucinex regimen. <laughs> That's a good story. 
That's a joke. That's a joke. But also a funny story. Um, and yeah, there's so many pathways. And what I think is beautiful about 2023 recovery is that we're completely open to all of them. And it's just whatever makes you happy, whatever brings you to the other side of positivity, whatever brings you to a life of purpose and happiness. I'm not judging it anymore, thankfully. It, it seems like um, it, it may be, maybe I'm incorrect in this assumption, but it seems like as a country in the United States right now, there's more people who are struggling with addiction than ever before. I don't, am I am I off on that, or is that? No, it's, you're I, right. I mean, eighteen maybe? right now, eighteen to forty nine years old. Like the leading cause of death is fentanyl. Like that that should be a pretty close statistic. But like the last I heard, like you know, especially men, eighteen to forty nine, fentanyl is the leading cause of death. It's like that. That sums it up right there. I mean, Crazy. heart disease. You think about cancer. You think about all these other diseases, and like you know, how how are we? You know, talking about all these other diseases, but addiction's not front and foremost right now. So, question about about fentanyl use, because um, I'm I'm a little confused by it, and, and I know Shannon, you were sharing about it um, during your story, um, a, a night of re- night of recovery, that that you were actively seeking um, fentanyl, right, or, or or heroin that had fentanyl in it, and you know, when you hear on the news, you hear the re- reporter say that, you know, this little piece of fentanyl could kill 30 people. So I'm, I'm just trying to, to understand how, how that, how that works. Cause I honestly, I, I, I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it, you know, it's just like you said, like the, the, just like the dust that would come off of fentanyl, like it can take somebody out. Right. Like I've seen it, I've seen it happen in person. I've seen a nurse, you know, a bag explode in the air and her basically go unconscious just from breathing in like a a mist of dust. Right. So it takes the smallest amount of fentanyl to kill somebody. And what, what I was seeking and I wasn't, like I said, this goes back to education, man. I wasn't educated on fentanyl. It was whenever I was using and I was in my, the worst part of my addiction, um, fentanyl was new like it was just getting on the streets it was this new thing that was mixed in with the heroin and if if i was seeking heroin and i got heroin that didn't have fentanyl i didn't want it i'd rather stay dope sick because it wasn't it wasn't put me unconscious to the point where i needed to be hit with narcan or you know like i wasn't close to death and it's like that's what you chase man like you chase that once you start shooting fentanyl and you're chasing it in a way where you're it's not that you're going like, yeah, I want to die. It's just, you know, you shoot one bag of dope that leads to two bags, two bags leads to four. And like that's just the progression of addiction and the way progression works. You know, you take one Oxycontin, you know, six weeks later, you're probably going to be taking four. Um, and fentanyl is the same way. It's like, you know, progression progression goes and the next thing you know you're shooting 18 bags at a time 17 bags at a time and you're unconscious and people are basically bringing you back to life every time you shoot it and you know like that's a problem it's a problem with our kids because the education's not there and i don't think that people truly understand the risk of what drugs now that are laced with fentanyl like what it truly can do because we have the mentality anytime that we're doing drugs and we're in active addiction, the mentality is it'll never happen to me. Right. And mm-hmm. until it happens to you and hopefully you wake up or you suffer a consequence that's big enough to make you want to make the decision to get help, like the education's not there. So like we just we got to do better. I think we got to do better as a society, getting back into our school systems and given the right education not just the dumbed down education or just the here, let me pat you on the shoulder, kid. Don't do drugs. Like that's not good enough anymore. Like, you know, even adults and getting into the communities and getting into, you know, um, these businesses and getting into these corp, these corporations and going like, Hey, this is a real thing in 2023 going into 2024 addiction's real it touches every family whether it's direct or whether it's somebody we know 
And like, we have to start being honest about this and not treating it like this black sheep that we want to tuck away in the closet of these corporations and these businesses in our homes and in our schools. And we need to bring it to the forefront and go like, hey, we need to treat this almost like a disease. And we need to educate on how to combat this disease. And this is what we can do in case it happens to you. This is how you can come out of it. I mean, fentanyl is a, a new, relatively new thing within the last, what, 10, 15 years or so, right? You know, being being on the street. Where, where is it coming from? Is it coming from from Mexico? You hear it's coming from China. Does does anybody, you guys, you guys know the answer to that or have any insights on it? We blame it. We blame it solely on Jesus Rodriguez. <laughs> He brings it, he brings it in. No, I, uh, I truly like, I got sober in 2007 and I never had the experience of fentanyl to my knowledge. Uh, I truly do not know where it comes from. Um, you know, if you ask some libertarians, I'm sure they'd tell you, sure they'd tell you where it comes from, John. Yeah. Well, you you hear a lot of, I I don't know, you hear a lot of different, you know, conspiracies that uh, there's, uh, Chinese run labs in Mexico that are, that are making it and it's being, being brought up that way. I, 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 I don't know. Um, it's, it is, it, it is an extremely sad situation and kind of what you were talking about before Shannon, where like, you know, the, the face of addiction, you were talking about like a, a soccer mom who runs through her picket fence and, you know, takes out her, her family. I mean, that's someone who's addicted to prescription pills. They get laced with fentanyl, they overdose, they're dead. Um, there's this, this just, it, it literally could, could be anyone like you've, like you've been harping on. And I want to just kind of stress that point because I, I think it's really, really important. Um, Chris yeah. question for you. I mean, you've started second chance PA and maybe you can talk a little bit about that, but you know, what are some other things, some other areas where, where you would like to see, um, change made, um, either in the criminal justice system or in policing or any, anything like that. Well, now you're speaking my language, John, because uh, there's a lot that I'd like to see changed in the criminal justice system. Uh, you know, that system, uh, the way it stood back in the day really existed to keep people in the cycle. And, you know, once you were in jail, you were put on parole, parole conditions were so harsh that there was almost no chance you were going to succeed. You'd fail, go back to jail pop back out again, try over and over. And from 18 to 21, that was my life and my experience. I would pop out of jail thinking that I was corrected because I'd been physically sober for, you know, six months, nine months, whatever it was, I would get out. Nothing had changed here. Nothing had changed neurologically. Nothing had changed here. I had just been physically sober in warehouse wearing county underpants for 90 days or 900 days or whatever it was. And, uh, man, getting out of that, and failing immediately, despite having spent that period of time thinking of nothing other than how I was going to avoid going back to it is demoralizing. It's dehumanizing and, and truly it shouldn't happen. So we know now in 2023, moving into 2024, that addiction is a brain disease. We now know how to treat that brain disease through therapy. It's super irresponsible of us to do anything other than give people the opportunity to get the life-saving treatment they need. So Second Chance PA started in 2018, actually five years and two days ago. Uh, we started doing this pre-arrest diversion program, partnering with 25 of 26 police departments here in Lancaster County. And those police officers go through training to understand what addiction is and how people get out of it. And then they have the opportunity, thanks to our district attorney or our local uh, state's attorney, as some states like to call them, uh, the chief law enforcement officer in our county. She allows the officers to make a judgment call on the street as to whether or not to charge the individual that they see with a crime or allow them to go to treatment and waive the charge. So I would love to see way more of that in every single county across the United States because we are taking individuals who are sick, charging them with a crime, making something that is medical punitive makes absolutely no sense to a logical mind. And yet here we are day in and day out incarcerating people who have illnesses for no reason. That would be my biggest change because there are so many Chris Dreisbachs right now that, you know, out there in the world 
struggling, 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 get picked up by the police. Now you're struggling and in jail. Now you're struggling mm-hmm. and have a felony. Now you're struggling. You get out, you struggle even more. And it seems like you get pushed further and further and further down into the hole instead of the helping that it's supposed to do, instead of the correcting that it's supposed to do. And, you know, I literally will go until my last breath talking about this because uh, there's no reason that anybody else should have to change in their name for a number just because they have an illness. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Um, I mean, another thing you see floated around out there as a mitigation um, is opening up areas where people can go to get their their drugs tested for fentanyl. Um, now I'm learning that you know maybe some people are looking for for fentanyl in their drugs. So is is that something that would be would be useful, or is that really a, a waste of waste of resources to to start doing that? Shannon, Shannon, you want to take that any, one first? On that you put me on the hot seat with that one. You have everybody. <laughs> um, you know what? Like, and this is just my opinion. You know, like, uh, uh, an addict's an addict's an addict. Like, you know, if it's if you're going to have your cocaine tested for fentanyl, like, you're still an addict. Like, it don't matter. You know, just because you, if you're physically addicted to a drug, just to wake up every day and you have to take a substance to feel normal. Like just because you're going and getting it tested for fentanyl doesn't make you any less of an addict. You're still an addict and you still need to take an honest approach to yourself and you need to get help. You need to make a change. Now, yes, I think it's great. Like, should we? Like, is it going to save lives? Yeah, hopefully so. Hopefully that could be something that would save somebody's life until they're ready or until they get the chance to get help. Right. So, I mean, it's just all in how you look at it and how you frame it. But ultimately, like, I just believe that, you know, an addict's an addict is an addict. It's like if your life's unmanageable and, you know, you're, you're at your bottom and you you obviously are, you know, you've got consequences and your life's falling apart and all this stuff's going on because you take a substance every day, then you got to take a look at yourself, man. It don't matter if you test it and it has fentanyl in it or not. Like, the fentanyl is not the problem. The problem is that you're physically addicted and you have to keep taking the substance in order to function every day or try to function. And you're in that vicious cycle. So, you know, for me, that's just my opinion. But, you know, I just I don't. Whatever saves a life like that's amazing because it might give somebody the opportunity to get sober. But yeah. the problem is that you're addicted. The problem is that you're sick. You have a disease of addiction. And until you combat that, it doesn't matter if you're if you're shooting fentanyl or, you know, you're taking Oxycontin every day. Like you're you're a drug addict. Mr. Dreisbach, anything to add to that? Man, that's like a that's such a hot, hot issue. Uh, you know, like what do they call them? Supervised injection sites. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're familiar with those, you know, it like, uh, there are so many proponents of the idea that if we had a centralized location, you know, in each city and each area where people could physically go to consume their drugs under supervision, uh, we would have way less overdose. And that from a logical standpoint makes perfect sense because if I'm being watched, I'm less likely to actually die. Um, but my biggest push on those things is having the resources right there available. So if I go in, I know there's a safe place for me to do drugs. I don't have to do it in the corner. I don't have to do it in the shadows. I don't have to be hiding from the monolithic evil government. I don't have to hide from anybody. There's no shame. There's no stigma around it. I go there. I meet somebody who's happy, who's free, who's living a way different life than I am. Is that going to intrigue me a little bit? Maybe. Is that going to plant a seed in my mind that will lead me towards recovery in in six months? Maybe. Uh, Not only that, but it keeps me alive long enough for me to latch on to that thing. So I have been at least a quiet supporter of supervised injection sites for a long time because I am sick of watching my generation die. I am so sick of waking up and reading RIP posts on Facebook. I'm so sick of people that I know have such potential being snuffed out for no reason just because we're holding on to old societal standards that Nancy Reagan set in place for us. Yeah. 
And I, I think for me too, like something, something, I just want to touch on something too that I think like, you know, with the clean injection sites, like, you know, for me, one of the things, cause I, you know, like I, I did use clean syringes whenever I was shooting fentanyl and pharmacies won't sell people clean syringes. Like you walk in there, they want a doctor calling in prescriptions. So I think, you know, the clean injection sites, you know, they help too with, you know, spreading the diseases. You know, whenever you think about mm. HIV or hepatitis um, or infections, uh, I, I think it's great to have those sites, you know, for those reasons as well, just so that way we can stop and people can, if they're going to choose to to shoot drugs or inject drugs, then having the clean syringes available. So not only do, you know, they can be watched like Chris stated, like that's a great point. Like let's keep these people alive. So, so hopefully something does switch and they want to get help. And with that, like we might as well keep them safe too from spreading of diseases too as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just going to add, um, I, I think, I think it was in, uh, uh, Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream. I had him on the show years ago. I think it was him that was telling me about this, but they had they had studied um, these clean injection sites in uh, in Switzerland. And what they found is not for everyone, but for some people over time, they would actually kind of wean themselves off of the drugs and go into, uh, into recovery. And I wonder if part of that is just going there interacting as, as you both were saying, interacting with other humans and kind of, you know, being able to see a, a vision for, a you know, a, a new life, uh, for, for a life, uh, after that. So I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, I, for all the reasons that, that you guys have stated, I mean, I, I think it's, it's something that is, I mean, I don't think it's end all be all solution, but it's, uh, it's not going to make things worse. I, I don't think, but more harmful laws. Just adding oh, yes. more criminal charges for simple things like possessing an item and, you know, just the way that society has been, the criminal justice world especially, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's going to continue to make it worse because it, it, you know, it pushes that stigma. It makes me a bad person. I legitimately believed that I was incorrigible. I was not able to be fixed because that's what society showed me. And every single time I got, you know, uh, arrested out in the street, I had to trade my name back in for zero one three one six four four, and it never, never fixed me. It never did anything to push me towards health, towards recovery. It just pushed me further and further into the muck that was my life. Yeah, um, we are running out of time here, unfortunately, but um, really appreciate the two of you coming on here and uh, and sharing with my audience. I just want to give you each just a, you know, a few minutes here to, uh, to share on either maybe something I didn't ask you about, or just a, just a, just a key takeaway, something of, you know, importance that you want to give people, um, you know, something to think, think about at the end of this podcast here today. So I'll I'll start with, uh, Shannon, if you, if you wouldn't mind sharing. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, like the biggest thing that I like to, you know, try to get in people's heads or, you know, the, just share with them is like, it's not a, if, if you think that you have a drug problem or an alcohol problem, or you're addicted to any kind of substance and you need help, like it doesn't make you a horrible person. Like it doesn't make you this gross person that you might feel like you, you are at that point. Like if anything, it's, it's going to be, you know, one of the most, commendable things that you can probably do is to finally like just you know like put your hands down and go like man like I might need some help and you know until we can get to that point where we can talk about this where our kids can talk about this where lawyers can talk about this where people in the workplace can talk about this open and honest um, you know I don't feel like we're going to be able to make a dent in this thing called addiction And that's just have the courage, have the courage just to dig deep and reach out for help to whoever, you know, if you Google it, you know, if it's Chris, if it's me, um, just reach out, just go like, hey, I need some help because there's millions and millions of people out there that have walked in your shoes, that have found the faith to dig deep and have, 
you know, got on the other side of this thing and can help you. So just just reach out, ask for help. Don't worry about being the black sheep. Don't worry about getting, you know, like your name tarnished because you might have a problem. It's like get the help that you need and it'll it'll work itself out from there. Everything else will. Chris, anything else to uh, to share? Key takeaways? Shannon definitely stole a good portion of what I would have said if you had me go first. But I want to leave you with two things, two things here. The first thing is exactly what Shannon said. Don't be ashamed if you're having a problem. And if you know somebody who's struggling, definitely don't. Keep the shame on them. Reach out your hand, say, hey. I know how to get help. I heard these two clowns talking with John Odermatt on this podcast, and they know exactly how to fix this problem. Reach out to them. You know, give them the support. Give them the courage. Give them the strength to reach out and get help, because a lot of times they don't even know that help's available. And that was my experience, and it was such a sad, sad and lonely feeling that I really want to be that person for as many humans as possible. Takeaway number two, slightly less important than that first one, is go to Prime Video. Type in Night of Recovery in the search bar. Watch Night of Recovery. Listen to the incredible stories. See what you can relate to. See what you can take away from it. And then share it with other people. And share the education. Share the resources. Share the love. That's about all I got, John. And I'm going to add this for any listeners out there that if you don't want to pay the $2 to watch it for the first five people who send me an email, John at lions of Liberty, John at lions of Liberty.com. I will send you the money to, uh, to rent it. So there's no excuse. Putting $10 on the line or whatever. Nice. It is. <laughs> That's, serious. That's serious right there. It's Shannon Moore's a, uh, what is it called? Honorarium. <laughs> Yep. That used to be what my whole life was about $10. (laughs) But no, I just want to thank you guys again for, for coming on the show and, you know, thank you for, for putting this together, putting this, uh, you know, really communication tool out there where, where people can, can watch it and, and hear real stories from real people who, as I say in the intro to, uh, to finding freedom, who have you know, overcome obstacles and have found freedom on the other side. So the two of you um, and everyone else who uh, participated in Night of Recovery are shining examples of individuals who have uh, who found freedom after going through um, some difficult times. So thank you both for that. And this is airing on Christmas. So Merry Christmas to, to both of you and all the listeners out there. And, uh, Thanks again for coming on the show. Cool. Merry Christmas, guys. All right. That is a wrap for today's episode of uh, Finding Freedom. Awesome show. Awesome content today uh, from my two guests, Shannon Moore and Chris Dreisbach. Um, I don't think there's a more important topic out there today. And I just want to encourage everyone out there, if you do know someone who is struggling with addiction, please utilize the resources that were uh, that were talked about today. Educate yourself and uh, put yourself in a position where you can be of assistance. So, thank you for listening today. If you do like this content here at Lines of Liberty, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also subscribe on YouTube. We have about seven thousand subscribers, um, but we're shadow banned. So, if you want to actually see the videos you got to hit the notification bell as well. And for that reason, we're growing the channel on Rumble. You can subscribe there where we are not shadow banned and you have probably a much higher likelihood of seeing our videos when you subscribe. So check that out. With that being said, Merry Christmas to everyone out there. Hopefully everyone had a great, safe um, holiday weekend and stay safe this upcoming New Year's weekend. And I will talk to you all in the new year. In the meantime, always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.